Today's program is brought to you by GreatBrewers.com, a social media marketing platform dedicated to promoting the world's great brewers and the beers they create. For more information, visit GreatBrewers.com. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good evening and welcome to Fun Men About, about it. it on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm Mary Isaac. And I'm Chris Kuzmi. And we're your co-hosts through this weekly journey of all things fermented. <laughs> Airing right here live outside of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And I say that because Mary's mouth is full and uh, you can't, you didn't even notice, did you? Uh, we're archived here on uh, HeritageRadioNetwork.org and also on Stitcher and iTunes. Yeah, big shout out to Roberta. So we, we have, <laughs> we did order some pizza for the studio this week, which we normally don't do, but it's so delicious and I was so hungry. We're going to airmail it to our guests. <laughs> yeah, so, but if you list. ever get to Brooklyn, man, Roberta's is is the place to eat pizza. It's so good. Anyway, so into announcements, let's go back to beer. So the first announcement is that we have a fantastic homebrew event coming up. It's coming up this Sunday called Brunity. It's Brunity at the Bell House. So it's going to be in Guanis neighborhood of uh, Brooklyn at the Bell House. It's a fantastic event. We've been to several beer fests there. It's going to be February 22nd. That's this Sunday from 1 to 5 p.m. I will be pouring a fermented jasmine green tea as well as a mixed berry white pepper all the way from Cambodia, short mead. And we're probably going to get that cider out, and I have a smoked mild also on the on the table. But also another fun part about that, and this is going to possibly tie into our show a little bit later, uh, you know, a lot of the homebrewers uh, all come from a diverse array of people, and uh, there's a lot of musician homebrewers out there, and so we've put together this this band of brewsicians uh, to, to play a set at, at the Bell House, and it's going to be a pretty fun little jam session. Uh, going on with that. But it also coincides with Beer Week this year. This year, Beer Week is February 20th to March 1st. There's tons of stuff going on here in New York City, and we are super excited about all of them. Find out more information at nycbg.com <laughs> or NYC Brewers Guild, New York City Brewers Guild, um, for all the events, including the opening bash on Saturday at the Altman Building, uh, Brewers Choice on Tuesday. Uh, co-hosted by Jimmy Carboni, who also runs Beer Sessions Radio, and a final closing bash at the end of the week uh, at Brooklyn Bowl uh, with a live jazz, uh, brass band, um, and then all of the remarkable and incredible individual events happening all over the city, all, in all five boroughs. A lot and, of fun stuff. Yeah, there. and I will mention that the three events that, um, that Chris just specifically mentioned are all ticket events, so I would urge you to go ahead and get your tickets, because some of them may sell out. That's right. Oh, on to our, all right, our big announcement is that Chris and I have started our own gypsy brewing company. It's called Cousette Libations. It's a combo of our last names, Kuzme and Izette. <laughs> so we brewed our fierce beer at Greenpoint Beer Works. Yep, Greenpoint. And which is Beer also Works. known as Kelso to a lot of you that are familiar. So it was such a pleasure working with Kelly Taylor and Tony Bellis and Peter Mallon and all the other people that Crafton. work there. Yeah, everybody else that works there, They it was just so much fun to brew with them. Uh, we brewed 15 barrels of a Cousette Grisette. So it is a 4.3% American Grisette brewed with all uh, New York State malt. 
and all New York State hops. And we uh, it was we kegged it up this morning. It's tasting delicious. Oh, it and that is. and that is uh, kind of in conjunction with New York City Beer Week. We brewed it for Beer Week, and uh, one of the things we've done for New York City Beer Week, and you'll hear more about this on Beer Sessions Radio tomorrow because we, I was a guest uh, of Jimmy's show. Jimmy's show is all about this uh, state malt and state hop project that we put together for Beer Week. Uh, but all the people in the New York City Brewers Guild voted on three malts and three hops that were grown in New York State and all made their individual beers with it. Uh, and and this is ours. Yeah. Anyway, we're super excited about that. It, it was just, you know, like, it's just a lot of fun. To, I've never brewed 15 barrels of a beer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it just, it, it's really delicious. But, but that's anyway. all tomorrow yeah. stuff. What's happening today, <laughs> But Mary? speaking of smash beers, right so State Malt State Hop is one uh, is one definition of the SMASH acronym. Let's look back at another one. Single malt, single hop. And on tonight's show, we have two guys that... Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham. Are you guys there? Hello. Awesome. Uh, so you guys just came out with your book, Experimental Homebrewing, and you also have experimentalhomebrewing.com. And you guys talk specifically about SMASH beers in the book. First of all, this book is absolutely amazing. You guys cover... So much material. It has so much good information. And I love it because it is, I think it's great for beginners as well as, you know, all the way up to the most advanced. Like everybody is going to learn something from this book. Um, so let's talk about Smash Beers. So I like how you open up in chapter two, you have recipe design. Um, and uh, you guys kind of open up with what not to do. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. So how did you decide to, to do that? Mary, I'm going to ask you to address by name first oh, so they don't sorry. get too confused on the other end. So we're, we're actually in, in three different locations, all of us. Yes. Mary and I here in the studio. Denny, uh, I believe, at your home. And, uh, I am. I am in uh, just in the foothills of the lovely Oregon Coast Range Mountains. Oh, man. Sounds nice. And, Drew, are you hiding in a closet at work? No, actually, uh, this time you actually have me at home <laughs> in Pasadena. All right. Awesome. Fantastic. Oh, I'm so jealous. It's so... It's pretty damn so cold. So much over here, warmer man. there where you, you guys both are. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's 65 <laughs> here at the moment and probably warmer where Drew is. <laughs> yeah, oh. I was going to say, I think, I think it hit 78 today and I hung out by my waterfall. Oh, man, I think we hit 19 today and that was. Ooh, wow, great. Yeah, awesome. That's without the wind chill. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's go back, actually. So that's very, I think that's interesting because, uh, Denny, you're in Oregon and Drew, you're in California. So how did you guys meet? Well, um, I, I think probably the right way is, is through the work that we've done on the HA. And HA? Yeah, I mean, really, that the first time was uh, going to, to one of the NHC conferences just after Drew had been elected to the governing committee, mm-hmm. and I was sitting in a shuttle going to the hotel when he suddenly hopped in and introduced himself, and the rest is history. You guys have both been home brewing about the same amount of time, right? 98 and 99, respectively? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah we run across each other bit. online and stuff like that. But uh, you know, that was really our first physical meeting. Mm-hmm. Cool. So let's talk about. Let's go. I'm going to ask Denny first. So Denny, you started homebrewing in 1999. Ninety eight, actually. Ninety eight, and um, and. Well, you're famous for a lot of stuff. Uh, you're very. <laughs> Let's talk about some that. of them, even good things. <laughs> I love, I love. So I was on the experimentalhomebrewing.com uh, website, and I love your brewing philosophy. It says, "Make the best beer possible while having the most fun possible while doing the least work possible." So, just tell us a little bit about your philosophy of homebrewing. Well, you know, 
that's that's pretty much it right there, Mary. I mean, it's a hobby, right? I mean, I, I'm not one of those people who has dreams of opening the brewery. I may be the only one who's like that, you know? Uh, so for me, I want to make it fun, and I, I want to make it as easy as I can make it without sacrificing any of the beer quality or, or the fun, because let's face it, sometimes doing crazy things is fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, uh, so and that's what really kind of led me into the realm of experimenting with testing the conventional wisdom and various techniques and ideas and stuff like that. Because not only do I want to have fun and not waste time, I I may be the laziest person on the face of the planet. <laughs> uh, so I don't want to do anything when I'm homebrewing that isn't going to pay off for me in terms of better beer or more fun. Absolutely. And going to you, Drew, so tell us a little bit about your philosophy of homebrewing. I mean, I know, I think the first time I met you was the San Diego National Homebrewers Conference, and you did a, um, you had some really experimental saisons. I believe that's, you always have experimental saisons. saisons going on, yeah. Yeah, oh so God, so you're kind of known for... Right now. I think I have three in there, so, yeah. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your homebrewing philosophy. Uh, my homebrewing philosophy, at least while I was writing the book, was uh, how much could I make Denny scream? <laughs> yep, yep. Um, he did. <laughs> yeah. So, no, uh, I'm, in a lot of ways, you know, it mirrors Denny in the, in the sense of um, I, too, am lazy. Uh, I think it's ironic that my chosen hobby involves a crap ton of cleaning because I'm looking <laughs> at my desk, yeah. and my my desk would not be uh, what anybody would cla- uh, classify as clean. Um, so I tried, you know, I I've I found ways that uh, that work for me, uh, but I find that you know where Denny is very much attracted to the process of brewing, uh, you know how how to make all this stuff happen, uh, and you know is really sort of the big promoter of batch farting. Uh, I find for me the 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 fun part is sort of the crazy, wacky flavor thing. Um, I, used to, I used to cook all the time, um, did uh, catering, and I find that um, this actually allows me to express that same sort of poetical sense that you get when you're cooking. Absolutely. And that's an interesting style difference, because, Denny, you're mainly an IPA guy, is it? No, not me. Well, not me. I mean, you know, I'm, uh, not mainly, but, but very much so. Um, that my rye IPA that a lot of people know about was actually developed uh, for my wife. Uh, she likes extremely hoppy beers, and we have a party for her birthday every summer, so that recipe came up for her. I'm more of a, uh, of a, of a German and Belgian guy myself, mm-hmm. so I brew a lot of IPAs, and I brew a lot of uh, various Belgian styles and German Pilsner and alt beer and stuff like that. Um, I, I don't tend to go so much in the uh, the wild and crazy direction as Drew, although at the moment I do have a uh, Belgian Golden Strong on tap that uh, was brewed with matsutake mushrooms. Oh, wow. Nice. Oh, so that brings us to one of the... There's a lot of intriguing in recipes in this book, but that brings me, since you mentioned the mushrooms... Uh, Denny, you have a recipe for Denny's Wee Shroomy in the book. And, uh, yeah, that's true. And as I mentioned in the book, um, some of my best ideas are stolen from other people. 
So I, that recipe was inspired. My very first homebrewing kit, rather than coming with Charlie's book, came with uh, uh, Randy Mosher's Brewer's Companion, uh-huh. which is a killer book. And in it, he had a beer for uh, that he called Nirvana, which, you know, right away you have to admit that's going to be enticing. And it just so happened to be brewed with chanterelle mushrooms. And where I live, I can walk out my door into the woods and pick chanterelle mushrooms. Wow. So it it kind of seemed like a, uh, a real natural thing. And once I ran across uh, Scott Abeen's recipe for We Heavy, uh, the two combined into a marvelous beer. Uh, I guess my real contribution was brewing enough batches of it wrong to eventually learn the right way to process the mushrooms to get the maximum flavor out of them. That's another yeah, one of my... Please note. Wait, take it. I was going to say, please note that this is a beer that's only possible to do if you can walk outside your house and, and <laughs> transfer all for free. Well, I mean, yeah, it would, it would you know, take nearly 100 bucks worth of mushrooms otherwise. So. Right, 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 right. And the freshness of the mushrooms then, is, or is that a giant issue with how you treat them? Uh, yeah, that's what I found. That the, the first few times I tried making the beer, I went with the conventional method of soaking them in, in vodka and then adding that to a secondary. And I found that not only did I not get much flavor out of them, that um, I, the vodka added a heat. When you're brewing a wee heavy that's already 9.5%, the vodka added heat to it that I really didn't care for at all. So what I've gone, come to through many, many batches uh, and, and trials is uh, once I pick the mushrooms, I brush the dirt off, I, I don't wash them, and I don't sanitize them, which horrifies many people. <laughs> uh, I chop them really fine, vacuum seal them, and put them in the freezer, and then thaw them out when I'm ready to use them. And between the vacuum sealing and the freezing, it breaks down the cells in the mushrooms so much that you just really manage to extract all the flavor out of them. That's awesome. awesome. So what do you recommend if, if someone can't go out in their backyard and, uh, and collect fresh mushrooms? You could, you know, you could use dried mushrooms, although chanterelles for one don't dry very well. Um, but, you know, you could make a smaller batch and use dried mushrooms. Um, for fresh, you end up needing two and a half to three pounds for five gallons. Uh, so, you know... I mean, you could experiment with other kinds of mushrooms, but to tell you the truth, the reason I've made both the chanterelle beer and the matsutake beer is because I live for these mushrooms are readily available free. Yeah, absolutely. And you guys talk about that in the book as well as, like, you know, um, sourcing ingredients and all. I mean, you talk about brewing with peas in here and lettuce. <laughs> so you cover a lot of bases, and I, I love that because I also am a lover of experimentation and, and fun ingredients. Um so in that same chapter, which is favorite experimental styles, Drew, you talk about your saisons and all of some of those variations. Yes, indeed. I think uh, at this point in time, I'm racking probably somewhere close to about 100 different saison recipes. So what's, um, what's your current favorite? Um, you know, I, I, one of my favorites is still the one that's in the, uh, one of the ones that's in the book, which is the citrus saison. Um, and mostly because, you know, when you're looking around nowadays, you see all the kind of the IPA love, you know, going on everywhere. It's like American hops everywhere. I, and for years and years and years, it used to be that, you know, Belgian beers and Belgian yeast phenolics, just not good combination with uh, hops, particularly American hops. 
so that was the reason why I always thought the hoppiest beer that you'd ever see out there would be uh, Duranka's XX Bitter. Right. You know? And with all the new hops that are coming out now, with these sort of tropical fruit flavors, melon flavors, grape flavors, etc., suddenly these work with the Belgian phenolics. And so the, the citrus saison, it's a dead simple recipe. I mean, if you look at it, I think it's you know, basically Pilsner, wheat, and sugar, and then a real kind of nice burst of tropical fruit goodness from these new hops. So that's really one of my favorites. The one that I still love to this day for you know, really causing people's brains to stop and break is the one that I served down in San Diego, uh, the guacamole saison. <laughs> Let me just say, when Drew walked up to me and a a good friend who was there with me with guacamole saison and told us what he had, our first reaction was to scream in terror. I'm just gonna we're gonna talk a lot more about uh, how Drew makes you scream after our break. Thanks for listening to Men About It. Stick around one minute. So you like good beer. Whether you're a craft beer pro or just had your first sip of an IPA, GreatBrewers.com is your number one beer resource on the internet. GreatBrewers.com bridges the gap between the world's great brewers and the consumers who enjoy their products. With so much information and misinformation out there, GreatBrewers.com focuses on education and leaves no stone unturned. Take the Great Beer Test on their website and browse through an extensive product catalog. Download their mobile beer cloud app which includes a GPS beer finder, a beer sommelier, and descriptions for over 5,000 different brews. What are you waiting for? Back up that passion for craft beer with some solid information and education. Visit greatbrewers.com today. Hi, how are you? My name is Andrew WK. They say when things are very delicious, it must be Heritage Radio. Welcome back to Foment About It on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm here in the studio with Mary Izette, my trusty and lovable co-host, <laughs> looking gorgeous as usual and being all smart and awesome and stuff. And on the phone, we have uh, Denny Kahn and Drew Beecham, authors of Experimental Homebrewing. And we're talking about how how uh, how Drew makes Denny scream. <laughs> with Cezanne. With Cezanne guacamole. So I have to ask, is it how, what was your inspiration for this Cezanne guacamole? Uh, that, uh, the inspiration for that one was uh, I'd gotten kind of stuck around this idea. You know, the, the romantic legend of Cezanne is, you know, they made all the stuff available on the farm to quench the, the field hands for thirst. And it's a lovely story and more than likely not entirely true. But it's a it's a great narrative, and I and I love the idea of narrative brewing, and, and something I'm working on right now to flesh out. But so looking around, walking out into my backyard, looking and saying, okay, well, if this were my farmhouse, what could I make? And it turns out that one of the things I have is all the parts required for guacamole in my backyard. You know, tomatoes, peppers, uh, onions, uh, and I have two avocado trees. Yay, California. Um, Yay. And so, you know, that was really like, okay, well, great. I, I can make guacamole with my farmhouse. How do I turn that into a beer? 
So what ended up happening was I ended up making a saison. I got my hands on some wonderful uh, uh, cold pack raw uh, avocado honey, which you know if you've never seen it, it's dark and thick and it tastes like molasses. It's very strange. It sounds um, a little like buckwheat honey, only like a kind of step sibling it, 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 of it, a it, buckwheat honey. It, yeah, but, uh, buckwheat honey always has a, like sort of a. Um, sort of a strange nutty flower taste to it that doesn't always sit with me right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the avocado honey is much more molasses-like and, you know, it, to my mind, more straightforward to use, even though it's like avocado. Um, but, yeah, so I, I layered that into a saison, made it dark because of the honey, uh, added lots of oats to give you that sort of rich, unctuous, avocado-y feel, uh, and then spiced it with all the stuff that you'd find inside of guacamole, except for the the garlic and the onion, because I didn't want to carry across the sulfur compound. Uh-huh. Yeah, smart. I've had a garlic yeah. stout before. Yeah, I didn't. Uh... It was good for a set. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I applaud you for that. Um. <laughs> One of my favorite, uh, you know, things that that you guys talk about a lot is, you know, I mean, the, the reason we experiment is to to you know, we learn so much from failing, right? I mean, all the mistakes is kind of where we really get get to things. So, and what are some of your philosophies in experimenting? Why, how, what, what is the control, and, you know, where do we go with this book? Well, I'll, I'll just lead off with saying that my uh, philosophy in terms of failure is I let Denny fail. <laughs> I learned from him. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, you know, well, I think... Go ahead. Okay, I think the, really the, the key to it is... Um, taking the approach that we put out in the book is really about, you know, learning how to make your failures successful and at least teach you something. You know, so that's the idea behind the whole scientific process, right? So, I mean, so far we've talked a lot about the, you know, hey, let's be wacky, crazy people and do uh, mushroom beers and saisons with, you know, avocados in them. Uh, but a good portion of the book is really about stepping back and behaving like a, a scientific experimenter. Right. right. So that's the other half of the experimental. And so really the idea of failure in the book is all about setting yourself up so that, you know, even if you do fail, you're learning something from it. Well, and you're able to evaluate your failure and recognize kind of what went wrong. And so you guys talk specifically about how to evaluate your homebrews. Yeah, and that's something that not enough homebrewers really do critically. I agree. You know, they, they, they brew a batch of something, and then the next time they brew it, they change a few things, and they go, you know, wow, this is really better. And it's like, I'm sorry, man, but you don't really know that, you know? So we try to talk about how to set up experiments and the evaluation of those experiments so that you can really objectively evaluate things, because if if you're fooling yourself, which we talk about a lot also, then you're wasting your time and energy that could be going into making better beer. So what is your go-to kind of experiment? You guys talk a lot about, for first of all, you, you do a very good job about talking about how to taste your beer. And I think that's something that really does need, it, it takes time to develop a palate and, and, um, and be able to taste objectively as well and get kind of this muscle memory. But then you also go through many different ways of setting up objective tastings of homebrew. So talk about what what is kind of your favorite go-to homebrew evaluation? I mean, the, the blind triangle is always the, the quickest and easiest way to really ob- objectively evaluate anything, uh, depending on what you're going for. Um, I'm, I'm doing a tasting this Friday of some beers that were brewed 
simply to evaluate the flavors of different types of sugars and not to really compare one to another. So in that type of circumstance, you know, a triangle tasting isn't really necessary. But when you're really trying to decide if one thing is better or different than something else, to me, that's the first thing I do. Could you explain the blind triangle tasting real quick? Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's real simple. Way to say it is, you know, to, to be blind, uh, you have someone else. Wait, wait. Okay, we're gonna go, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's okay. I know with, this with isn't a perfect phone system we have, so yeah. But with the triangle tasting, the, the important part is that everybody thinks they can tell the difference between two things. Uh, you know, it's like I, I can tell the difference between a red wine and a white wine. You know, no problem. We, we talk about them in the book because there's lots of famous studies about it that show it's pure bunk, but. Uh, a triangle test is basically I'm going to give you three glasses. Two of the glasses are the same. So two of them have beer A in it and one has beer B in it or you know some random choice thereof. And the idea is something that actually makes a difference, has a real impact on what you're doing as a brewer, then people who are tasting the beer blind without knowing what any of the difference is should be able to tell you that glass is different than these other two glasses. If they can, then you've successfully made a difference that people can understand and recognize. If they can't, then you have to go back and evaluate because more than likely, what the change that you made, a different hop, a different mashing procedure, different rest temperatures, different fermentations, didn't make enough of an apparent difference for blind tasters to be able to actually detect it. Yep. And that's fantastic. And I know... Um so that you have a whole chapter about just evaluating your experiments. You know, that's where you tell how to taste and the different experiments that you can do, like the triangle tasting. Um, and then you have the last chapter is actually about experiments. And I love it because there's one in particular, Denny talks about decoction mashing and how you guys asked um, five brewers from around the world to brew two identical batches, one decocted and one with an infusion mash. And you didn't see a dip. People didn't see a difference when they did a blind tasting. Uh, no, I mean, uh, if you look at the number of people who uh, preferred the infusion mash beers plus the number of people who couldn't tell a difference, and you know, it was it was so much greater than the number of people who preferred the decoction mash beers. It really gives you pause about you know the whole decoction thing. Uh, and again, t- to me, it comes down to how much time do I want to spend doing something that may not make an appreciable improvement in my beer. Right. And and also, I think there's a lot of other areas where you could where people don't maybe devote enough time and thought that they should be. Um, so, yeah. So I think, you know, you these ex- the experiments in this last chapter are absolutely excellent. I think, first of all, you have there's just so many good ideas. I've been thinking a lot about um doing some very small experiments on my own lately. We were talking about, you know, just, anyway, staggered nutrient addition barley wines and all kinds of stuff. And I think experiments is a really good way to not only evaluate, you know, um, you know, if one is necessarily better or worth the time, but also getting the really the different the aroma, the different aromas and flavors and mouthfeel and what kind of different beer does it make? Yep, exactly. So what is your favorite, let's go to Denny, what is your favorite uh, experiment that you've run lately? Oh man, the the I can't, the latest one that I've done is uh, you know this this one with the sugars, um, and it's more more of a real evaluation. But we brewed uh, we brewed fifteen gallons of beer, uh, uh, left uh, 
three of it played, split the other 12 into different uh, fermenters and used uh, uh, muscovado, molasses, uh, some D45 from candysyrup.com, and uh, some poison ivy honey uh, from a friend of mine who lives down the road. Uh-huh. And that, those are the ones you said you're going to be doing and tasting with those this Friday? Yeah, on, on Friday we're going to, I'm getting together with some other people, and we're just going to be doing a, a tasting and, and evaluating what kind of flavors. I mean, it was a really standard word, uh, you know, about basically, basically just pale malt and about 5% crystal and uh, nothing but bittering hops, Haller Tower to about 30 IBUs, you know, so it's a pretty neutral base. And how did you determine how much? Did you determine the amount of sugar based on your your gravity? Um, basically, um, I made a guess that uh, going on percent of total fermentables would be a way to go. Okay. So we added enough sugar of each type to be equal to about twenty percent of the total fermentables in the batch. Oh, cool. And then, are you going to do this this tasting blind? Uh, no, we're not going to actually. Well, now that you mention it, Mary, maybe we will. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like I said, it's, it's more of an evaluation to just see. It's like, okay, so, so here's the Muscovado. What does that bring to the beer compared to the base beer without any sugar in it whatsoever? Right, yeah. No, I think, yeah, I mean, that sounds awesome. I wish I was in Oregon to, to join you in this. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we end up with extras, I'll send you some. Yeah, please. <laughs> oh, we should do that, yeah. We could do that out here with one of our, uh, some of our local honey and, and oh, lo- you know, sugars that we get. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a real interesting thing to do. And, you know, um, I, I, I was done at, at the request of a friend who writes for the Northwest Brewing News, and he wanted, I've done a couple experiments for him before, and, uh, so he wanted to do this so he could write about it in his column. So that's why it's happening. Uh, is there another book in the works? Is there another project going on? Yeah, apparently Denny and I don't like free time. <laughs> so um, I made Drew do it. <laughs> Good. Yeah, it, it's the gunpoint, you know, twisting my arm. Okay, 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 I'll do it. Um, yeah, uh, what we're working on right now is we're working on a new book called uh, Homebrewing All-Stars. And uh, what we're trying to do is brewing is a real collaborative art. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that for myself, uh, I learned the most when I was a, a new young whippersnapper brewer uh, by going and brewing with other experienced brewers. Yep. Uh, and I'm fortunate that I have a very big club that I could do that with and lots of different viewpoints, lots of different people to do it with. But not everybody has that that resource available to them. And not only that, but you know, all the best people in the world aren't in the same area. So what we're, go- what we're doing right now is we're going around and we're gathering profiles of people that we consider to be all-star homebrewers. These are either people who, you know, oh, hey, you know, this person won many, many competition medals, or this person described a new technique for mashing that's become very popular, or, you know, different thoughts, different philosophies, people that you should watch. And we're gathering them together, giving them, getting them to give their advice to people and building sort of these brewers' profiles so that people can look at the book and read through the book and go, well, you know, I'm really kind of a process geek. You know, that's that's my my thing, which is really actually Denny's thing. And, you know, <laughs> I'm going to go read the people who are process geeks and see what they do. Or I'm a guy who really likes wild and crazy, wacky recipe type stuff. Let me go look at the, you know, five or six people that they're profiling in the book that talk about that and see what I can learn from them. I love it. I love it. 
I have a question from uh, from from an outsider at the moment. It says that uh, you know what were some of the least successful experiments you tried and then with non traditional flavors. Are there any uh, experiments where where things went totally awry and astray? Uh, maybe per- perhaps too much of a stretch to try and incorporate in. And you would warn people yeah. again. So what was a yeah a big learning lesson? Well, for me, a big learning lesson was actually the first time I used cacao nibs. Mm. So, you know, everybody loves cacao nibs nowadays, and it's like, yay, use cacao nibs. And at the time, uh, going back to the whole I'm incredibly lazy thing, uh, I put a bunch of uh, cacao nibs in the secondary of a, of a really nice chocolate porter I was trying to make and uh, walked away from the, the fermenter and forgot about it for about a month. Mm-hmm. That's a lot and of it turns out. Yeah, it turns out uh, cacao nibs are contact time sensitive. <laughs> and, uh, what I ended up getting was a beer that was incredibly foully astringent. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, uh, I think I, we, we covered the, book, uh, the beer in the book, uh, because that was a beer that I rescued with a fifth of Razzmatazz liqueur. Uh-huh. And suddenly you can no longer taste the astringency and it worked. So that was, that was mine. You know, and I should mention that uh, several places in the book, Drew talks about uh, uh, experiments that have gone awry and how he saved them. And I, I really think that there's some real valuable advice in there. Absolutely. That. Absolutely. I agree. On the other hand, um, <laughs> many years ago when I was talking to Jamil about things, we both agreed that people think that we're great brewers because we never talk about our mistakes. <laughs> right, right. So I did, let's not expose them. There are no, <laughs> no, but I think that's, that's I think that's one thing though that I mean this book has so many wonderful recipes and ideas and um, and things that go right. But I do love it that you talk about that things you know what not to do and things that ha- have gone wrong because it gives balance and you learn from the thing you know like Chris said earlier you learn from the things that go wrong just as much as you learn from the things that go right. Uh, I, actually, maybe even more. Yeah, you know because it causes you to think more about how things work. Absolutely. And if you're making something drinkable, just because it went left when you're expecting it to go right and it's still a good beverage, it's you know totally Well, fine. you know, I, I put a lot of faith in the, uh, in the thing that Dan Listerman said many years ago, which is malted barley wants to become beer. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, so uh, uh, I have now brewed 478 batches, and I think that there have only been like maybe one or two that were so bad that I didn't want to drink them. That's yep. very commendable. Well, and, and now we're going to try and add one more to that because uh, Denny and I are going to be oh here this year. You guys what? And I've, I've actually convinced him before we go to Brazil that he's going to stop by and he's going to brew me and we're going to make a clam chowder saison. Yes. I jokingly said something about Drew brewing a clam chowder saison. And every time I mention a weird beer, he takes it as a challenge. New England oh, no, no, or no, Manhattan? So we're heading, we're heading down to Brazil at the beginning of chowder. May to, uh, <laughs> to address their national homebrew convention down there. But uh, I'm flying into L.A. a day early so we can brew a clam chowder saison before we go. And hopefully it'll be at NHC. Yes. Fantastic. <laughs> I very fantastic. much look forward to tasting that. All right. So let's talk about the book again. So the book is called Experimental Homebrewing. It is available pretty much everywhere um, that books are sold. Homebrew shops, online outfitters, box stores, wherever uh, homebrewing books and other interesting White books are sold. in the parking lot. Right? Yeah. yeah out, of, out of the parking lot. <laughs> 
And speaking of online, I want to commend both of you for, for having such a great presence and being so accessible. Like, if you guys want to be get in touch with Drew or Denny, they're readily available. And, and uh, now you're going to be bombarded and be, be answering emails all week. But thank you for being there and sharing the knowledge and experience just in real time, not in addition to the books you, you guys put out. Why, why, thanks, Chris. But to me, that's what it's all about. When I started homebrewing, I received a lot of great help from other people, and it's only right to try and pay it forward. Right on. Uh, Denny has an incredible excuse. He's retired, so there's lots of time. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have the excuse that I'm trying to avoid work. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you guys have a website. It's actually experimentalbrew.com. So that, that kind of... That has a nice, some nice crossovers with the book, so there's a lot of interaction with the actual book. And then you guys have you know, more bonus material, and it's ongoing. So I would definitely urge you guys out there to check that out as well. And you can find us on uh, Facebook, too. We have a, we have a Facebook page. Yep. Excellent. Experimental Homebrewing Facebook page, right? Yep. Yep. And we actually, I think we linked, I actually was able to link to that in our, uh, in our Facebook, and the show will also be, well, be up um, later tonight, so we will send you guys that link as well. All right. Wonderful. Drew, Denny, thank you so much for joining us on Men About It from afar. And, uh, thank you for right. asking us, and I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys in San Diego. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Too. We will be there. Absolutely mutual. We will see you soon. Thanks for listening to Men About It, everybody. Thanks, Liz. Thanks, Heritage Radio Network and Roberta's, Jack, Aaron, Drew, Denny, Jaren. And all of that lovely audience out there. <laughs> we, yeah, we always have a live audience that can't hear us. So, uh, We're this weird fishbowl in the back. And anyway. I'm, I'm only saying this because Liz hasn't started the music yet. I know. The man about it yeah. over here. <laughs> <laughs> the theme song for Men About It is provided by Chris Kuzmi. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.